what constitutes a crisis is not the actual circumstances of your life. It's what those circumstances mean to you, especially I think people that feel intensely and people that put a lot of thought into how they try to navigate the world. It, it is absolutely possible that your pillar is something that to someone else is literally just privilege, but to you, it could be the world. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. A huge thanks to everybody who has joined me here on this podcast, all of the survivors since we launched in July of 2020, and to all of you who listen, whether this is your first time or you listen week in and week out, thank you very much. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter. At Suicide Noted. You can also learn more about the podcast at suicidenoted.com, our website, which is up and out to the world, though we are still working on it. You can also contact us there and learn more about ways you can support the podcast and this work that we do. Now, we are talking about suicide on this podcast. It may not be a good fit for everybody, so please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Kevin. Kevin lives in California, and he is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Kevin. What's up, man? Hey, hey. Kevin, you are in the uh, great state of California, am I correct? Yes, correct. Are you concerned there's going to be an earthquake there in the next 10 years? (laughs) I hopefully won't be here in 10 years. I'm sure there will be some earthquakes in the next 10 years. Hopefully not the big one. That was a really good segue to our conversation, given what you just shared about not hopefully being here. Not in that sense. Not in that sense. That's for sure. Oh, you mean not in California? Yeah. Yeah. Do you see where my brain goes? My brain goes to, oh, he's thinking about ending his life. Okay. Where, where do we start the Kevin story? At least with this particular topic, I, I, I think it all starts about two, three years ago. I've had like depressive episodes before that, but never bad enough to think about this sort of thing, about suicide. Two or three years ago, this combination of factors came into play where I was leaving home to go to grad school in London, so far away from anything I'd I'd really known before. I grew up in all sorts of different places, so that wasn't too big of a problem, but generally speaking, throughout my life, I could always count on, oh, my family's just one quick phone call away. I might have to hop on a flight or drive for a couple hours, but it's always there. Whereas when you're overseas, when there's an ocean between you, it's a little more complicated. And so that happened. And at the same time, I got involved with a relationship that had a lot of difficult dynamics. The relationship was still going on. So we're talking about the same girlfriend that I'm living with. Hopefully that'll give you some ideas to why I am talking my car. She was married at the time and it was an open marriage. I'm very much not an open relationship kind of guy, but I agreed to give it a shot to enter that dynamic. 
she made the terms very clear, but I'm very much a hopeless romantic sort of guy, like all about soulmates and such. I'd say that's probably the most irrational part of myself, but something I always kind of held on to. It was just, I don't know, it, it, it was difficult on both of us. She also had a, had an attempt during that early period. The worst that happened, I, I, I had several attempts, but in spite of my several attempts, I never actually ended up in an institution or hospitalized or anything. The worst it got was me basically cutting my arm pretty badly. Like I still have a pretty big and gnarly scar that I don't think is ever going to go away. But she actually ended up having to call an ambulance and ending up staying in an, in an institution. I, I don't know what the word for it is right now. Um, I think they kept her for a week. Yeah, so basically what happened was just, was an open marriage. The dynamics really di didn't work very well. I didn't ha handle it as best I could. She didn't handle it as best. I mean, honestly, I think I, th I think she did handle it as best she could, at least mm -hmm. initially. But things got really complicated really quickly. And then after three months of us being together, she asked for a divorce and we went exclusive. But at the same time, they were also still living together and would continue to live together. Like this all happened. They they agreed on a divorce until in August of 2019. And he officially moved out. Like at that point, he started saving to move out. And he officially moved out in, I believe, March of 2020, March, April of 2020. That was pretty difficult on us, especially since she at the time was in California. I was in London. So it was long distance too. It was a very, very strange dynamic. And I didn't have much experience with those particular dynamics with like an open relationship and a long, super long distance relationship and, and that sort of thing. And we also just came, like we came from very different places in terms of how we think about love. She came from a very, obviously an open marriage. There's a certain amount of thought that goes into that, a certain kind of personality and a certain view of love. Whereas me, as I said, I was very, I wouldn't say traditional, but very much focused on the, oh, it's you and me against the world and like the whole soulmate sort of deal, right? And that put a lot of pressure on the relationship, put a lot of this tension between us. I had a couple of incidents early on where I, uh, I, I don't know why this was. I think at the time my reasoning was that if I jumped in a river or something, because that, that's what I did, my reasoning was that A, none of my loved ones would have to deal with it. And if they did, like it wouldn't be like they would be walking in and see me hang somewhere, right? It would be like at the very worst, they'd have to identify me somewhere. I also figured they wouldn't have to deal with any of the cleanup or like, Anytime they walk into the bathroom, they think of that sort of deal. And so that, that, that's kind of why I always gravitated towards the river. And then in 2020, early 2020, I uh, was staying in a motel. Some bad shit went down. I found a letter she had written to her ex asking him to basically take her back, that she was sorry, all this sort of stuff. We weren't, we weren't in a good place. We were, we were in a much healthier place these days. Took a lot of work and a lot of, a lot of trauma to get there on both sides. But back then we were not doing well. And uh, I found that letter and I was losing my shit. I was pacing around. I didn't know what to do. And so eventually I just took, I don't even remember what it was. I, I don't think it was a knife because I didn't have any utensils there because it was a motel, right? I took the sharpest thing I could find and I just, I cut my arm mm -hmm. uh, from my wrist to the inside of my elbow. And I pushed as deep as I could. There was a ton of blood. I was freaking out immediately afterward. Like initially I was like, oh, it just, I, I struggled with self-harm before that, only during this whole 
relationship. So there, there was always that sense of like, you know, when people self-harm, it's, it's sometimes about that relief, that sense of, at least for me, it was um, translating that emotional turmoil into a physical thing that you can identify and sort of like look at it and see it. And mm-hmm. it feels like there's less of a disconnect, you know. Initially, I, I, I looked at it and I was like, okay, I for some reason, some irrational reason, I felt better. And then soon panic kicked in. And I was like, oh, shit, what the fuck do I do? I'm in a motel. I don't have anything. If I go to the, the hospital, you know, my parents will know. She will know. All this sort of thing. She knows these days. Uh, my parents, I told I would, I told my parents I was in the uh, laundromat of my dorm. And I reached down for something behind the laundry machine. And I guess there was something sticking out. And then I scratched myself that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether they actually believe it, but they sure say they do. Yeah, so that was, I think, the most serious attempt other than jumping in some rivers in London. So you're living your life, you're a young guy, and it sounds like you had, and and I don't mean to sort of summarize or minimize it all, but you're living your life. You'd said that you dealt with some depression growing up, but nothing that led you to consider taking your own life. Yeah, no, it was like, uh, it was nothing. I wouldn't even call it depression. It was just, as you grow into an adult, you grapple with the state of the world and that sort of thing. Angst. Yeah. You go to grad school in London. What did you study? Computational cognitive neuroscience is what it's called. It's basically just like modeling brains mathematically. Wow. You meet this woman who is currently your girlfriend who's in an open relationship. And in the course of that, up until today, it sounds like it was hard. In that time, when you were across the pond, so to speak, you tried at least once, it sounds like more than once, to take your own life by jumping in a river question that i have and forgive me for my naivete how did you expect to die by jumping into a river well each time i'd gotten drunk once i mixed the alcohol with some pills i don't know part of me was kind of just like you hear about people you know either killing themselves or dying because they fell in the thames and that sort of thing none of those times was i thinking rationally all of those times i was kind of just like i i, I want to be done with this i want to be gone I, I think part of it was also just the idea of subjecting myself to something I really don't like, which I like going in pools and that sort of thing. But the idea of just jumping in a random river, very unpleasant to me. I don't know if it was a statement to myself or what it was. It just, it's how my feelings at the time expressed themselves. And what happened each time? It was never really uh, as dangerous as I wanted it to be, I guess, except for one time where um, I got tangled in something and I, I panicked for a bit, but then I got loose and I uh, got back out. Pretty much every single time what happened was I'd be in there for like a second, would just keep my eyes closed and just stay as best I could underwater. And then I'd swim around. I don't know whether it's, I genuinely don't know whether I consciously made sure that every time I jumped in, there would be like a way out nearby, but at least I, I never really had to look. I'd mm-hmm. always be like, oh, there's a thing back there. I'll just, I'll just swim towards that. No one ever even saw me because usually what it was is um, I would do it like super late at night. That's something that I used to do a lot, don't do as much these days, uh, would be just at like 3 or 4 a.m. I would go on walks. It started when I was, when I entered college because I started my undergrad in New York. And so I, I wanted to feel like I'm getting a good sense of the city because I'm, I'm big on travel and that sort of thing. And so I just walk around and try to experience the city at that particular time. 
and that's a habit that I continued until until I moved to California, basically, because right now we're not living in a big city. It's like my first time not living in a big city in a long time. Did you finish school in London? Yeah, I did. I did. I uh, ended up getting my master's. I It actually was a really, really cool experience. I don't think I did as well uh, grades-wise as I, as I would have had I not been dealing with all these things. I, I did manage to graduate. At the end of your master's, you're supposed to do like a thesis. And I got a really cool thesis opportunity, and I was actually super excited. Like academically, professionally, I was doing great at the time. And that's something that, it's actually something that I noticed because I've been, I, I was fascinated with suicide a lot, just growing up in general. I always thought that it was super interesting because it feels like the, like, like the antithesis to what you would think the biological would drive, drive would cause you to do. You, you think that your body with your emotions, every part of your animal brain would want you to try and stay alive. And yet every time that I've considered suicide, it was something emotional. It wasn't something rational. Rationally, when I think about it rationally, it's the dumbest thing I can really do. Not necessarily for everyone, because some people are just in situations where I can understand. I can understand how they arrive there rationally, even if I personally disagree with it. For me personally, it's not something I would ever arrive at rationally. It's something that happens emotionally, right? Thinking about that sort of thing. Okay. But, but I was always able to reason my way out of everything until this relationship happened. At which point, it felt like everything was hitting too close, and reason just didn't really matter anymore. When you when you describe it with respect to it being not a rational choice, it also doesn't sound super impulsive though either. So I would say the most serious one was definitely very impulsive. That was definitely in the moment, just doing anything to feel better. Jumping in the river, it was like I deliberately put myself in a place where I knew I wouldn't be making rational choices. Mm -hmm. Like I would be going out, getting hammered, and just walking around. Sometimes it would just be like, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I want to say I'm emotional, but when I'm standing there at the edge and I'm looking out in the river, I, at least at the time, at least when I'm on drugs or I'm drunk, I start thinking funny, funny thoughts. I think the best way I can put it is it wasn't a rational thing. It was just a general feeling of, I wish I wasn't here. I wish I didn't exist right now. Feeling like what I am supposed to do at this moment, what it feels like if this was, if my life was a story being written, this would be the moment where the character would just jump in. You know, mm -hmm. that's the best way I can describe it. My, my ability to describe it is somewhat limited by the fact that I don't think it is a rational thing. And I'm a very rational person generally. If I, if I was to name two things in my life where I'm not rational, it's literally suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, and honestly, the way I handled the early parts of that relationship. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it was a mixture of the fact that I was very big on the whole soulmate idea. Once I'm, I don't want to say fixate on someone, but I, I very much felt that this person was my soulmate. And these days I feel like that again, we're in a much healthier place. It's not nearly as toxic. We've learned how to deal with um, a lot of the issues that we had at the time. I, I'd say we're in a much more mature place these days. Back then it was a mixture of that. And also once she did, and the marriage, part of me was just like, even if you decide to break up with this girl, like she ended her marriage for you. So there was definitely a component of guilt as well. Th that marriage, she said herself that it would have ended eventually, but maybe not in that particular moment. There were a lot of difficult feelings at play. And I regret a lot of, of what went down back then. I'm glad to say that we've managed to grow and mature both individually and as a couple since then.
Are you, for lack of a better word, glad that you didn't die? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I'm very, very glad that I didn't die. I don't know if I was even necessarily in danger of dying. I, I know when I when I first found this podcast, I thought about, huh, like I, I, I'm pretty sure that everyone at least, even if they know for a fact that it's not going to be a no, they might think about what would it be like if I, if, if I reached out and was like trying to have this conversation. And for me, a big part of it was just like, why are you even thinking about this? You didn't actually end up anywhere. You didn't actually like get hospitalized or anything of the sort. But then as I listened more and more, I, there were more and more episodes where people were like asking themselves essentially the same question. I think that's one of my favorite things about this podcast is that it helps you feel a lot less alone and a lot more valid. That's the so, only reason I do it, really. I can tell you uh, it's helped me a lot emotionally just processing things. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's good to hear that. Not like an ego thing, but just like, uh huh, okay. And for me too, it helps, you know, they help me feel less shitty too, or less alone or so. Yeah, yeah I, I sure hope so. So your girlfriend does not know you're talking to me. No one does. No. Oh, nobody does. Okay. I, I've mentioned the podcast to people, but like, I don't think anyone is yeah. listening to it regularly. I know my girlfriend in particular is like, I'm glad you have that to cope with, but I don't think that's my sort of deal, my sort of right. way of oh, yeah. dealing with this. For sure, some people, it's the opposite of their deal. I know that. Yeah. Like, hell no. So you are now in California. Yeah. And you're obviously alive. You obviously have a car and a girlfriend and a home. In 2020, you said you were in a motel. That's not a common thing. I don't hear that very often. So what happened was that when COVID started happening and travel bans started happening, like I kept telling my family, like, hey, it's possible that I might have to go to the States just because we don't know how long this thing might might last. But my school hadn't closed down anything. Like, I don't know if you know what went down in Britain when this happened, but initially there was a lot of hesitation to close down schools and that sort of deal. And my school in particular was explicitly sent on an email the, I think, two days before I flew to the States um, saying that they would not be shutting down, um, that they'd keep going. And I literally, I, I, the news of the travel ban between the UK and the US, I'm a citizen of the EU and of the US, so it's not too big of a problem for me, but I just didn't want to risk anything. Uh, news of the travel ban came in. I sent that day an email to my school saying that, hey, I really hope you find out a way to still keep me on as a student. Because this travel ban is happening, I got I to gotta go home. Uh, just so I don't get locked out and like I, I, I don't know what the situation is going to be with this virus. Next morning, uh, right before my flight, the school decides that it's gonna they're, they're going to close down. They're going to do remote classes, all this stuff, and I'm going to be fine. I, they didn't even reply to my email. They literally just sent out like a system-wide uh, announcement saying, oh, it's going to be fine. Like we're shutting down. It's going to be remote, something like that. And I left half my stuff there at the time because I, I figured it could be like months. I didn't mm. think it would be three years. And so half my stuff is still in Europe. But I came over here, came stayed with my parents for a while, and then he moved out, her ex, that is. That was really hard on her because it really made it clear to her that like this was actually happening. He was gone from her life. And like they'd been together for 10 years. She was not in good spot. And her mom wasn't very good to her. And so I decided I'd go visit her. And I stayed in a motel for a uh, for a month and she stay with me some nights some nights be at home that sort of deal got it I, I was really lucky in grad school i got a grant that more than covered my tuition so i had like a bunch of money that a bunch of savings and so that that's how i paid for that 
Um, if I wanted to, I could have stayed with my parents. But do you have a little bit of an accent? <laughs> yeah, I never know how to answer that question. I was born in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Spent most of my childhood in Germany, then Austria, and then when I was, I think, fourteen, fifteen, we moved to Florida. You said that you never went to a hospital. Did you ever get any type of diagnosis that you think is accurate or correct? Yeah. So over the last three years, I've seen one school counselor and two therapists. One, uh, you know, those online therapist type deals. Yep. Depending on which one of them you asked, I either had, I'm depressed. At one point I was on uh, SSRIs, but those didn't do anything for me. And it's a problem I've dealt with for a long time in my life where I feel I'm very, I have a very hard time doing self-help sort of deals and listening to therapists because most of the stuff that I feel like most of the stuff that I'm told is stuff I've already thought, you know, it's very rare that I'll be talking to a therapist and they tell me something I haven't heard. One thing that has helped actually, and this is going to sound a little silly. I'm, I'm very not religious, very not spiritual, but over the past year, I've started reading about early Buddhism. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the spiritual element of it, but there are aspects of Buddhist practice and this whole idea of like an internal science of the mind sort of deal um, of trying to be mindful and trying to create some emotional distance, ra- trying to rationally create some emotional distance between you and the world you experience. Honestly, I found that more helpful than any therapist, which mm. is, is not to disparage therapy. I know my girlfriend has found great success with it. It took her a minute to find the right therapist, but once she did, it, it helped her a lot. Yeah. But for me personally, I have, I've always had trouble with self-help type deals. Like Sometimes she'll be like, oh, I found this really great self-help book. Uh, a self-help book. You, you should check it out. Never does anything for me. Yeah. So the motel was in 2020. Was that the last attempt? Yes. I've had instances uh, since then. Yeah. The months after that specifically where I was like self-harming, but uh-huh. then I, I haven't self-harmed in eight months, nine months, I think. Do you ideate with any regularity or at all? I've been ideating the last month and a half. Um, but other than that, not usually. Um, I'll get depressed every now and then and I'll struggle with that, but specifically ideating, that's more recent. Any idea what, what sparked that? Yeah, so... Originally, when my girlfriend and I got together, um, the plan was I'd stick with her. I'd get a job uh, at a university here, which I did. And I'd work that job, help put her through school to, to finish her degree. And then after that, she would get a job And while I did my PhD. And that was basically the plan. But I don't expect you to know this, but my field, computational neuroscience, is pretty specific. And uh, my research interest primarily lies with consciousness. That's what my thesis work was on as well. That's a pretty difficult thing to find in just one state. Like there were two labs that were doing work of interest to me in California that I would have wanted to do my PhD at. One of those closed down after the PI moved to Japan. The other one is doing consciousness stuff, but isn't doing it in the exact approach that I would want for my PhD. And so I didn't apply last fall, which is the application season for PhDs. I, I, I got pretty oppressed because I was like, oh man, I'm almost 30. I don't have my PhD. I'm 27 right now. So it's a little silly to say I'm almost 30, but I'm starting to think about that sort of thing. And so I was like, oh, I don't have my PhD. And because this was supposed to be a short-term job, uh, right now I'm working at, at UC Davis. My plan originally was to just get a publication out of this, right? Because that would help with PhD applications and that sort of deal. That didn't end up happening because the data that I was 
to work with ended up being bad, right? It was just like something went wrong in the experimental phase and most of my work over the course of the year ended up being wasted for yeah. through no fault of my own. And so it just kind of felt like this last year was the first time in my life where I wasn't actively working on trying to further my education or my career. Like it's the sort of position that you would get after grad school before your PhD, but not getting a publication out of it, not a good sign. And between that and the fact that now I'm going to have to wait another year. So you apply for a PhD in the fall, you start that PhD the year after, which means right. that me missing this last application period means I'm going to apply in the fall. And then I'm going to, when I actually start the PhD, I'm going to be 29, right? I know that seems probably like a silly thing to people, but to someone who was extremely career driven, like for a long time, that's why I struggled with depressive periods in my life as well is that I put a lot of my self-worth in my academic standing and my scientific expertise and how well I was doing. Um, and I was doing pretty frigging good. Like, like I did my thesis work at Cambridge. Like I was doing really freaking good, working exactly on what I wanted to work, exactly where I wanted to work on it. And I went from that to basically a gap year that doesn't look good. I'm unlikely to get a recommendation letter out of it. And so yeah. I just felt like my career was stalled. Um, and then there's also like financial pressure. Like we're not going to be on the street anytime soon or anything like that. But we've, we've definitely had times where we're like, oh, we're flat broke and we still have a week and a half to go in this month and we don't have any food. So what the hell do we do? That sort of deal. You know, it turns out early career researchers don't make that much if you don't have a PhD yet, especially. And California is not cheap. Nope. Um, yeah. Do you have people in your life to talk to? I can talk to my girlfriend, but there are some things I don't talk to her about because I know that they would make her feel worse or they would touch on some of the emotional beats that led to her attempt. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to drag her down like that. I do have my brother who I can talk to, but you know, he's younger and he's going dealing with stuff on his own and I don't want people to worry about me. I have friends online that I can talk to, but like I can't, I, I don't talk about this stuff with anyone that I see in person. No, no coworkers, no friends that in, in real life that I would talk to like that. It's bits and pieces of everything here and there with select people. And then maybe every now and then I'll vent online with someone, you know? Yeah. How, so you'd said that nobody knows you're talking to me. How many people know about any of your attempts? My girlfriend knows about all of them now. Didn't know about all of them at the time. My brother knows, because I had to explain this giant scar, we were having a discussion at some point, like, oh, I'm, I'm super depressed. And he showed me some of his self-harm scars from when he was self-harming. And I sent him a picture of that and told him, oh, it gets way worse than that for me. You know, we were just kind of trying to talk about this stuff. I, I don't know whether he necessarily knows it was a suicide attempt. I, I don't even know if I'd call it a suicide attempt, even though it, I, I'm sure it would qualify as one, but he knows it's due to suicidal thoughts. Let's put mm -hmm. it that way. Mm -hmm. Like he knows it was suicidal and he knows that while I was suicidal, I, ha I made that scar. So I'm sure he can put two and two together. Actually, uh, a couple months after that, I told him that I was ideating. So I guess he knows, but that's about it. My parents don't know. I, I couldn't do that to my mom. When you talk to your brother, is he... Is he good to talk to about it? It's hard for people to talk about this stuff, you know, especially family. Yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky. My family is very good. They're extremely loving, extremely supportive. The reason that my schedule recently changed is I'm going to be unemployed on the 11th, right? That's when my contract runs out with the university. I don't have a job lined up. We're not going to have trouble paying rent, but 
I know for a fact that if I needed my rent covered, I could just phone my family and they would cover it for me, you know, to, to help me out. They're, and they're not rich, you know, so they're very, they're very loving, they're very giving, very supportive. My brother is exactly the same way, but I think the shortcomings in those conversations don't come from him. They come from me holding back, not his inability to give support. There is a certain level of distance because he's my little brother where I don't want to just fuck up his view of the world or make him worry too much, that sort of deal. So I'll open up and I'll bond and I'm very happy with the relationship we have. But I do sometimes hold back and sometimes that holding back leads to him not being able to help as adequately as he might otherwise be able to. Got it. Yeah. When you are ideating, and I know it's not that often these days, does anything help? If your brother to talk to, you mentioned you took some solace in Buddhist studies or early Buddhist studies and might be getting that a little off. Is there anything else that helps? I know it's not the healthiest thing in the world, but I like drugs. We lost our dealer, so we haven't had anything super crazy. Uh, Molly used to be a very fun thing that we did. These days, I mostly just, especially since we're in California, I just have an edible work out and listen to a lecture or something. Another thing that's really helped was, like I said, my girlfriend and I, we're in a much healthier and better place these days. I'll go to her and I'll just, for lack of a better word, ask for a hug or something. Yeah, she'll she'll be there for me. And But what we do a lot is we just, once all work is, cut, is done for the day, we'll just hang out in the living room and we'll play video games or we have some edible and watch a show or we have some wine and uh and paint that sort of deal and uh Ooh, having wine and painting sounds fun i'm, I'm horrible Her, hers are cute mine mine are horrible yeah. and i find a lot of comfort in that and also just I, I i said that suicide for me is this emotional thing not this rational thing i've gotten a lot better at trying to get myself to think more about okay before suicide what would my real answer be right? So before I do this, what avenues would I need to explore? And as silly as it sounds, sometimes literally just thinking about, oh, you know what? I'll say fuck it to this job. I'll disappear and just travel the world because again, travel was, has been a big thing for me. Or like I'll, right before COVID hit, literally January 2020, I had this amazing opportunity to go to this uh, workshop for, for my field in South Africa. And I got to be there for literally a month and just hang out with people that were into the same things as me, same interests. I could talk to about about my specific interests and research interests and we'd connect. They would understand, you know, and every night we just drink a little, we'd party, we'd just talk. And so every now and then, as silly as it sounds, sometimes I'd literally be like, okay, before you kill yourself, at the very least, just go to another workshop. As dumb as that sounds, just the idea of that escape of okay, just have another month in, I don't know, Canada or something. I realize this is something I thought about a lot before I reached out to you was um, I know I'm a lot more privileged than some of the other people that come on this podcast. Like some of them are more privileged, some of them are less privileged. My whole issue with my career and with like, oh yeah, when I'm suicidal, I just think about going to some workshop in some far off place. I understand it might sound silly to some people, but I think it's important to understand that the way that I have set up my life, I try to set up this value system of what matters most in the world, what's worth dedicating your life to. When I fall short in aspects I find crucial in realizing or actualizing myself, that has a lot of weight for me. I would quite literally say until this relationship, like I've had relationships before that, and I never really thought I would ever say that anything matters more to me than putting everything I have into my field into science. And then this relationship came along and suddenly I'm like, oh, this isn't going well. I should kill myself <laughs> instead of just, you know, breaking off the relationship. 
it doesn't matter how privileged you are because at the end of the day, if you're feeling that way, you're going to feel that way. Yeah. Your world is collapsing. Your world's collapsing. Even if the world has a whole lot more stuff in it than other people enjoy or need or lack. 100% agree. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to ask you, nothing to do with any sort of privilege or perceived privilege, but was it difficult for you to reach out and email me? It was, yeah. It took a lot of thinking. Um, ultimately, what convinced me was literally just other episodes of people who questioned themselves whether they should reach out. Specifically, what ultimately convinced me was because I emailed you and then I canceled and then I emailed you yeah. again. A week before that first email, I was listening to some of the older episodes because I haven't listened to every single one. I listened to a whole bunch and then new episodes started coming out and I started catching up with those. And so I'm slowly working my uh, way through the backlog. What happened was someone mentioned that they weren't sure whether they should reach out. And I got a lot out of that episode. It really, really helped me. I, I get a lot out of this podcast. It is feels, feels like a silly thing to say about a podcast, but it helps me process some of the feelings that I have myself. Uh, it helps to listen to it and recognize parts of yourself and other people. And so I figured, you know, even if I feel silly, even if so there are people that might think, oh, listen to this privileged fuck, you know, <laughs> um, ultimately, if anyone listening benefits from having heard my particular story, even if it might not come from the same particular background that some other people might, then, you know, I got to reach out because mm -hmm. at some point someone was asking themselves the same question. They went on here and them coming on here helped mm -hmm. someone. Right. You don't know who hears it. That's what's sort of weird and interesting and almost magical about a podcast and modern technology. Really, I'm talking to you. You're in a fucking car in California. I'm in my kitchen in North Carolina and people all over the world can hear it. It's bizarre. Oh, it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. It's only in the last in your lifetime. Yeah. Before then, that wasn't a, even a remote possibility. The question is, do you think you'll try again? When I reached out, I thought about the questions that you usually ask. I, I I thought it was easy. It would this one would be easier to answer than it actually is. Maybe, but it would be very very far off. Maybe once I'm once I'm old and I feel like I, and I reason my way into it. I think the only way I could ever I would ever do it, having been through the last couple of years, is if I reason my way into it. And I don't think I'm likely to reason my way into it. Mm, yeah, I mean it's an easy thing. Well, not easy. I can imagine somebody saying, "No, I'm good." I mean, no way would I do it again. I think it takes a certain level of, among other things, awareness and something else, a word I can't think of to say, it's not 100% that I won't. It's a possibility. Yeah, surprised myself before, so. Right, exactly. Do you have any um, myths, M-Y-T-H-S, myths that scream out to you that need, need uh, uh, dispelling, so to speak? Yeah, I think that... Um... What constitutes a crisis is not the actual circumstances of your life. It's what those circumstances mean to you. Especially, I think, people that feel intensely and people that put a lot of thought into how they try to navigate the world. It, it is absolutely possible that your pillar is something that to someone else is literally just privilege. But to you, it could be the world. Mm -hmm. To you, it could be the last 20 years of your life. To you, it could be your entire model of how you planned to live your life. I think that it's important to realize that sort of thing. And uh, this is a little different because um, I, I, I know how you probably mean this question. But I think one thing that helped me really on my journey was to just, I, always, I don't know whether this even qualifies as a myth, but I dismissed a lot of advice that people gave me 
in my life just on the basis of, um, oh, that sounds like something generic, something like, that sounds like that cliche thing that people sometimes say. And I would just dismiss it on that basis alone. What I found is that sometimes, especially as I grew older, that advice rang truer than I thought. Mm. And there was more weight behind some of those words than I'd ever anticipated. And I just, at the time, was too caught up in, oh, that sounds super generic, to really consider, like, even if the advice is generic, that person that's giving that advice might not be saying it because they just don't know what else to say, and that's something that they've heard before. They might be saying it because they've actually gone through something that mm -hmm. proved that advice true, had mm -hmm. a lot of meaning in their life, and so they say it. I know there's advice in my past that I hadn't just thought, oh, that's cliche, that's pretty that's generic this person this person doesn't actually give a shit this person's just trying to you know mm -hmm. say what they've heard on tv or whatever and if i had taken it i don't know maybe maybe there wouldn't be a scar on my arm there's some advice though you know because it's sort of generic i think how you frame it and sort of deliver it matters a lot yeah i mean even having the awareness to say hey i know this sounds generic but you know what i mean like even yeah, that yeah. to me the way you frame things matters a lot that level of awareness most important to me isn't so much you've got this life lesson you want to um, share, which may or may not land and may or may not be meaningful for me. It's do you want to listen? You want to sit there and listen with me, then I'm pretty much game for most things you'll say. And if you don't, I'm pretty much not. That's just me. Yeah, I hear you. And I, I would completely agree with that, except there's one specific person in my life, my dad, who I know means some of that advice that he says, even though it sounds generic, but he just doesn't have the awareness to realize how generic it sounds. If it's someone who you know is aware and who kn should know better, yes, completely agree. Was there so I'm just curious, was there something he said that you can recall where that uh, applies? There's no one statement that comes to mind. It's just a general thing I've learned from my dad in the past that was a lot of times when he would say stuff and I would just kind of dismiss it and then I grow older and, and I'd be like oh it sounded generic especially as I learned more about him and his life I was like oh he he really lived that he really lived that shit um yeah it's not yeah. a generic rule at least not for him and then also in I, I never really believed in God but especially when I was younger I, I would be like very militant about it very oh, this is silly. Like, I'd think about Buddhism and I'd be like, okay, maybe they're not as, you know, aggressive as some of the other religious groups out there, but um, they're still kind of silly. Turns out all I really had to do was listen to a couple lectures and read a book or two on it, and there was a lot more to it than mm. I had initially thought. And mm -hmm. just because it sounded generic, some of it, even just the concept of mindfulness, rings truer than I would have thought. There was more weight behind all of it than I thought. And all it really took was some perspective. I know this isn't going to apply to any to everyone. It's the thing that sounds that rings most true when I look back. And so mm. that's what I'd impart. What else would you like to share? Questions I may not have asked. Whatever else you want to add before we get on with our. Well, for me, it's my evening. I guess it's early evening by you. Yeah, uh, for me, it's going to be the drive home after work. Honestly, I, I think the number one thing I just that was definitely on my uh, on my list of things to make sure I do during this conversation is just even though I know especially as people have mentioned it before and I, I, I've seen your reactions, you're not about the ego. I just really want to thank you. Your podcast has helped me a lot. I would go very close to saying that if it wasn't for the podcast, I would probably have another attempt in my life. That's actually one of the things that I probably should have added to when, when you ask how I deal with things sometimes. I listen to the podcast. Like Sometimes I'll literally just go on a drive and I'll listen to the podcast. And as I'm listening to the podcast, I feel a little bit less alone and I feel a little bit more understood and mm. it's come to as silly as it sounds 
feel a little bit like a safe place to me. Not that I needed to hear that and not that I, I, I need any additional reasons to do it, but that helps. I, I just imagine you probably get emails every now and then from people being like, you know what you're doing is damaging or something like that. And I, I really hope you don't, but I imagine that there are going to be people that probably don't look at the podcast the way that me and I imagine most listeners look at it. In more than a year and a half now, I've had two people reach out. I remember them very clearly. That's it, by the way, just two. That's good. You're you very t- open, very honest and very uh, very accepting of how this makes people feel and how what they might say. And I think that's what makes it so good is just it creates a very unique space of, okay, this, it's actually okay to talk about this here. Yeah. And it's difficult to end it elsewhere. Yeah, I guess so. I, I appreciate that. And I do think I, that's one of the reasons why I'm able to do it and I feel pretty good in the space. And one of the reasons was I, I wasn't, I didn't do like an exhaustive search. You know, I, I wasn't looking to do a good podcast and I researched it and it was suicide, but it could have been, I knew that this is what I wanted to be doing. Um, but it also just so happened that as I was kind of just seeing out what else was out there, I didn't, there is nothing like there are podcasts in which you might have an episode where someone's an attempt survivor. Yeah. But it's just surprising to me that there are, there's fucking podcasts about outfits for your cat. This podcast for like painting faces and making balloons, given the amount of people that deal with this and the stakes, it's very surprising that there's just not way more conversation about that. I found this podcast because I just searched for suicide on Spotify, just trying yeah. to find any content. And um, there were episodes here and there, and there were, I think, one other podcast, but I wasn't, I, I didn't like the format too much. But then I listened to an episode of yours and I, First thing, I really liked the intro music. That felt really good. And then, <laughs> thanks. It's free for me. The conversation was that was amazing. I hadn't seen that anywhere else. It felt so unique. I I, I hadn't yeah, found it anywhere else, and I really value it. Awesome. I'm I'm really I'm I'm glad that you you get something out of it, and that you shared it with me. You didn't keep it to yourself, and that I'm glad we connected, man. Um, even though it had to be in your in your Prius, it's cool. <laughs> it's I appreciate it, and others will definitely. I hear it and and be affected in in presumably positive ways, or at least, like you said, feeling a little less shitty, a little less alone, or whatever else, you know? Thanks, Kevin. I hope your day goes pretty well, and I appreciate you you, you sharing with me. Thank you, Sean. You have a good one. You too. Take care, man. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Kevin out in California. Thank you very much, Kevin. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And we also have a website, SuicideNoted.com. We're still working on it, but it is up and out to the world. You can contact us there as well. And if you'd like to support us, in addition to doing what you're already doing, which we do appreciate, you can let folks know about the podcast, share it on social media. If you listen on Apple, rating and reviewing the podcast really helps people find it. And I've included a couple of links in the show notes if you want to help us out with a financial contribution, whatever you decide. Thanks very, very much. And that is all for episode number 104. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.